0: To the Habitat Podcast. The podcast for wildlife habitat management,
2: hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to
3: the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese. We are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, thanks so much for coming back another week here at the Habitat Podcast. We are here to become better habitat managers together. And we have a great informative episode for you here today. We are talking mushroom food plots with Upper Peninsula resident Matt Williams. Yes, that's right. Mushroom food plots for deer. Other wildlife too. Deer crush mushrooms, according to Matt, and really... It's a very attractive, nutrient-dense species. We talk about how to create your own, where to put them, but mainly we talk about the benefits of mushrooms, the nutrition, the protein, you know, Matt's thoughts on the October lull. Where are the deer really? Are they out looking for mushrooms instead of hiding from the hunters? Um, We talk about an array of things here. We talk about, you know, Matt's background, where he grew up. Um, He's from southern Indiana, but lives in the Upper Peninsula over towards Wisconsin right now. Talk about fungi, um, the different amounts of phosphorus, which is missing in vegetation, and a lot of food plots. Uh, Just a bunch of different information to absorb here. Something different, mushroom food plots for deer. So it's pretty cool. Um, He's actually already created a couple on a Habitat podcast listener's property, PJ, up in... The Western UP has been a long-time listener. I connected the two of them, and Matt went over there, and they made some mushroom food plots. It's already been done. It's been documented. Find that out on Habitat Chat, our Facebook group. Um, It's just a great episode for you here today, guys. Now, I want to thank Exodus Trail Cameras for their support in the podcast. They are running their Velvet Fest campaign right now. So what that means, you know, it's been going for a couple weeks. It runs through, I believe, August 19th third week in august um every camera order comes with a scratch off that could save you 15 to 20 percent off your next order of another camera or their new mmt arrows custom tailored arrows so hunting season's right around the corner here guys if you need cameras or arrows check out exodus but right now if you use the code what is you're doing if you post it up online hashtag VelvetFest, you will be entered in through this online event multiple prizes will be given out and they'll be sending out Exodus gear to random people that participate. So very cool. You know, Exodus, um, a five-year warranty for theft and damage coverage. Now again, use code velvet fest to get these great savings and every single camera order comes with a scratch off ticket for a prize, a discount, whatever you get, every order comes with that. So be sure to hashtag velvet fest guys. We love using their cameras. I have not had one issue with their cameras. Under cellular camera with the SP 18 solar panel kit. That's what I'd recommend. Look into that Exodus All right. I want to thank all the listeners who've been leaving us great reviews, either on Apple, iTunes, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to the podcast, we really appreciate your reviews. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, means a lot to us, helps us you know, get found helps other people find us who are looking for podcasts and habitat management, white tail habitat, etc. So really do appreciate that. You know, anything you guys want to want to share of ours and, and that on social media, we appreciate all that. I do send out free decals to those who leave us great reviews on Apple iTunes. So go ahead and scroll down to the show notes in this podcast right here. Just go to notes. Hit the link for free decal, leave a review, write something nice, put your name there. Now, food plot season is here, guys. Be sure to get your fall food plot seed on order if you haven't already. I am planting the vitalized seed carbon load this fall. Um, I already have about an acre in the ground, and I have another probably half acre yet to do. Um, and then another couple acres at a third piece still on the to-do list right now. We're in a family vacation camping up in the UP. UPM ones that I need to get in the ground too. So if you want, check out vitalize seed.com that's vitalize they're half acre free shipping to your door. Um, there's 16 different seed types in this fall carbon load mix. We cover everything when it comes to soil health, nutrient density photosynthesizing it's all there root structure check it out vitalizedseed.com all right i want to thank packer max cult packers michigan whitetail pursuit morse nursery afflictor broadheads realtree united country lamb pro lake states Realty and auction and first light guys we're gonna have a friend of mine josh from first light on in september so if you're thinking about hunting gear and you want to know more about it shoot us some questions i'll ask him I did that the other day for my buddy Craig, so we will get Josh from First Light on here soon. All right, without further ado, let's get into Mushroom Food Plots with Matt Williams from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. All right, guys, we're back. Beautiful August afternoon here. Brian hall how you been, buddy?
1: I'm doing great, my friend. We're in the time of year where I hit the second half of the year at work, and I usually save all my vacation for the second half I uh, had a nice family vacation in yell in uh, Yosemite California and uh looking forward to getting in a tree stand here in about four weeks in Wyoming jeez four weeks that's that's amazing how was your vacation oh it was incredible that's the first time I've ever been to Yosemite and saw that part of California so really nice wife and kids had a great time we saw a lot of cool stuff and drove over to the beach and on the Pacific coast for the last couple of days and got to go see some whales and dolphins and pretty sweet, pretty something different. You know, they like to go to the beach a lot and, you know, sit in the Caribbean or, or sit on the Florida coast, but yeah, you know, getting up in the mountains and hiking and seeing all that different stuff was pretty cool.
3: Yeah. California is actually a very, very, uh, cool outdoor state if you're an outdoorsman. So it's, it's, uh, those, those trees are gigantic. I
1: mean, it's probably an understatement. I didn't realize the highest mountain in the lower 48 was in California. I had no clue. Hmm. I don't think I did either, actually. Which one was that? I would have thought. Mount Shasta. What was it,
2: Matt? Mount Shasta.
1: That sounds right.
2: Yep. <laughs> I've uh, guided all over the world. We'll get into it in a minute. But uh, I used to do routine search and rescue missions on the second, third tallest mountain in the continental U.S., Okay. So Mount Shasta is six feet taller, Mount Massive and Mount uh, Elbert in Colorado in the Sawatch uh, range right there around the Leadville are uh, like, you know, six and 12 feet shorter, respectively. So they're like 14,400 feet. feet.
3: Wow. That's not a big difference, but it's a difference.
2: It's a difference.
3: Well, Brian, glad you had a good time there, buddy. Um, and you guys heard from our guest Matt Williams. Matt, welcome to the show, buddy. How you doing?
2: Good, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate this.
3: Hey, no problem at all. We're um Brian got back from his family vacation. I'm currently on mine. We're camping in northern Michigan right now. Stop one of four or five, I can't remember. Um going for a while. Beautiful weather. Just uh enjoying it. And you're you're in the you're in Michigan too, but you're further north and west.
2: Yeah, I'm in the UPA. Eh? Oh yeah. Eh? Uh, Yeah, Iron Mountain, so basically glorified northern Wisconsin, you know, so the part of the UV that's full of Packers fans, that's where I'm at, Uh, right on the river.
3: Gotcha. So how far from Wisconsin are you?
2: Uh, I mean, depends on which way I travel, but less than a couple miles.
3: Oh, you're right there.
2: I'm right on the river.
3: Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. You... um... You reached out maybe a month or two ago um, via email, and I always love it when people reach out and we have discussions and throw ideas around this and that. And then we were talking about mushroom food plots. Oh. So nat- naturally, you caught my attention. And then, second of all, we were talking the other day um, on Friday, I didn't realize, but I've actually seen you on the Upper Peninsula show 906 Outdoors that Brian throws together up there, um, as a forager, et cetera. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you do the, the background explanation here, where you're from, what you do, and kind of tell people, you know, paint a picture of who Matt Williams is for us, please. All
2: right. So my dad's half Potawatomi from the Grand Rapids area. Um, wow. my family's been in agriculture for many, many generations on both sides. My mom's side, the white side, as we call it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's greenhouses, it's a floral center, and uh, raises produce crops and things of that nature. And I was raised with my mother. I wasn't raised with my father's people, uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, so I turned, you know, I, I mean, I kind of grew up in ag or whatever and under those traditional circumstances. Hunting and fishing were a part of my life, but it was self-imposed. So I didn't grow up with my grandpa or my dad taking me or anything like that. I went with friends. I went with uncles family members and uh, and uh, my neighbor would give me all the old hunting magazines and stuff like that. So I would self-educate on the subject. So, uh, I kind of taught myself to hunt. Lo and behold, turned 18, 20 years old. I lied out of there and, uh, become an adventure sports guy. And I traveled the U S and the world, whitewater rafting, rock hunting, search and rescue, uh, stuff like that. Mostly whitewater. Uh, so found out I was going to be a dad and I sold my whitewater rafting company that I started here in iron mountain and uh, started to farm traditional ag, you know, organic produce, uh, some, you know, uh, pasture poultry, pasture hogs, things of that nature. My neighbor owns the rest of the 150 acre arm that I farm that I've been leasing for the last dozen plus years. Uh, that's hay and cattle and has horses and raised short grain. So there's a lot going on there. And, uh, two farmers, one farm usually doesn't work, but I stayed out of his way. And then, uh, later on i transitioned exclusively to mushrooms because it wasn't the best greens around or the cherry tomato selection we were offering that had people lined up it was the mushrooms so i transitioned exclusively to foraging wild foods uh and raising and farming mushrooms Um, that took us pretty far Uh, i recently closed that business because with the new economy driving long distances doesn't make as much sense anymore and it was basically a 200 mile commute to each of our markets uh, you know, round trip. So that gets old pretty fast as well as the price on everything involved in that now. So, uh, I had a job offer for commercial cannabis as a farm manager and I took it. Uh, it's a nice job and, uh, it afforded me the opportunity to, uh, go in half on my buddy's hunting camp with him Well, it's his dad's camp. It's 80. Um, it's a very unique parcel and, uh, So, I began to self educate in habitat management over the last uh, 18 months or so, in particular. And uh, of course, that led me to your show. And then, uh, you know, while scratching my my butt and figuring out how I'm going to do all this stuff with vegetative food plots and everything else. And, uh, you know, from a poor boy perspective, I really began to think about all my experiences with mushrooms and deer and how much I hate deer for eating all the mushrooms over the years. And, uh, I started to put things together and do some research and it led me down a pretty interesting path.
3: Okay. So you're what, what triggered you, if you will, for lack of a better term to realize that the produce the share tomatoes, the regular, I guess, conventional farm stuff wasn't where it's at. And you wanted to go on this niche routine here of, of mushrooms, like where people just like come and buying them all at the, the farmers markets if what triggered you to be like okay i'm opening a mushroom company
2: um so at that time you know mushroom farming was more uh what i would call uh, elusive to the average person than it is now there wasn't as much information readily available they weren't as in vogue as they are now with the rise of fantastic fungi on netflix and things of that nature people are really in the last few years taken on the mushrooms uh, which is awesome. But 10 years ago, I really had to sell the hell out of this product and convince, you know, not convince, but educate consumers. Um, mushrooms are, first of all, do you want to farm in the sun or the shade? You know, that's, that's okay. a real easy choice. You want to be outside when it's 90 degrees in a hoop house, or do you want to be in a climate controlled uh, barn, you know, at 65 degrees? Uh, you know, that, that, those are pretty easy choices. Um Also, monkey see, monkey do. It doesn't matter what you're doing now in the produce world. The next year and the year after, everyone else is going to be doing it. So no matter how revolutionary you are or how cutting edge you are or staying on top of trends and setting trends, eventually it's going to be to your detriment. Um, There's just a million people looking to get into it and it sounds so easy and now they have all this food and what are they going to do with it? Well, they're going to reduce the price on it and they're going to cut your throat and So it it really became a a no brainer for me, you know, between the the people requesting mushrooms lining up in the morning to buy all the mushrooms before we got sold out. Uh, And yeah, it was farmers markets mostly. Direct to consumer is the best business model for a small farm. Um, We did have an on-farm store. Uh, During the pandemic, I I, uh, turned a 12 by 20 area into a farm store. And that worked out pretty well for us, although it was absolutely exhausting to keep those hours. Um, so, but we, we, that gave us a year round presence for our local customers. And, uh, we did restaurants and things of that nature too.
1: So Matt, why do we care about mushrooms for deer and wildlife habitat? And how in the heck did you end up on the habitat podcast?
2: (laughs) Exactly. So number one, like I said, I've been eating out of house and home by deer stealing crops uh, over the years. There are some that they really enjoy more than others. Um, so I began to grow some of those just as a trap crop to keep the, pre- the, the deer pressure away from the more valuable crops, so to speak. Um, so there's, there's that component in particular. Now I say this, it's not like I'm in the traditional UP uh, area where there's no food for a thousand miles you know, in big woods. I'm in ag country. I'm right up on the river. It's fertile here. There is clover and alfalfa and silage corn in every direction around me at that farm, and they were choosing to walk past all those items just for the mushrooms. That's really what began to tick in my head that you know, hey, it's not just a food source. It seems to be a preferred food source. Um, and now with that farm, I was allowed to hunt does, there, not bucks. There are monsters on that farm. And that really gnaws at you when you can't pull the trigger on a bunch of monsters who are fighting (laughs) over your mushrooms.
1: Right. Right.
2: Yeah. So uh, that, that kind of got and you know, as soon as they walk off the property, they were dead. But um, so that kind of all piled it up. And I thought about just sitting on this and just, you know, keeping it to myself, but boy, it just feels fatuous. I feel like I should share this information with the world. Yeah. I'm going to try to make a dollar off of this a little bit, but at the same time, I'm not trying to get rich off this. I'm not trying to sell everybody something. And while we're talking about the, the mechanics of finances here, this is cheaper than pretty much anything else you could do on your property. It's it could be as cheap as putting in a fruit tree.
1: So what kind of varieties of these mushrooms are these deer keying in on that they're walking past everything else?
2: So we have to separate this into wild and farmed mushrooms now. Okay. Right? And there is some overlap. Some of the farm mushrooms are wild that we're farming because they lend themselves to be able to do that. That means they're sapotrophic, they eat decomposing material, right? Whether this is on logs or in sawdust beds, there are they don't really seem to have a preference. From everything that I've read I've read, it's lar- they there are preferences and there, aren't. there are not they're large fleshy mushrooms. Number one, they don't their their digestive system is completely different than ours. So they're able to take toxic mushrooms and eat them as a food source that we can't. So therein lies a totally different scenario. Basically it's the largest fleshiest mushrooms, but I'll go one further with the wild mushrooms. And I will say that the mushrooms that we really covet, they covet more. Mm. So this would be chanterelles, hedgehogs, my or hen of the woods, uh, the white oyster mushrooms, the late fall oyster mushrooms in particular, uh, wine capper, king stroferia, stroferia rusa annulata, to speak uh, Latin. There's about 83 names for that mushroom. Those seem to be the most prevalent. Yes, they're gonna predate shiitake. Yes, they're gonna predate some of the other mushrooms that we have in our log yard. 20 plus species of mushrooms down in that log yard. Seems a bit inevitable that they're gonna take a bite out of everything but there are two mushrooms they seem to really love. And, uh, and they, they occur, they're native to North America. And so those are the ones in particular that I'm focusing on now. That with regards to growing, you know. Sure. Um, with regards to the stuff that's wild, those are the other focuses. Um, uh, you know, the stuff that they seem to have a preference for. And that preference seems to kind of occupy certain windows of the year. Um, because the mushrooms, they don't all come at once, obviously. You know, they're ephemeral. They're some of them will fruit multiple times. What we call fruiting is like an apple given an apple tree, so to speak, right? The mushroom that we think of pops up from the ground. The actual mushrooms, the organism underground, uh, which is mycelia, and that goes into science that we can talk about in a minute. But when those fruits, the mushrooms that we think of that we pick pop up from the ground, you know, they may be there for five days it might be there for 15 days some of that's climactic conditions some of it's the genetics of the mushroom some of them will repeat some of them are one time only through the year some of them stagger in through six to eight weeks uh fruiting time and time again and dwindling numbers each time um when the case of wine caps i mean they're basically from the time that the uh the, the snow goes away to the time the snow comes again they're popping um gotcha so we're what I'm looking for is mushrooms that are substantial food sources that occupy the windows of time that uh, parallel our opportunity as hunters, especially those later portions of the year when there's less available in the landscape for food, substantial food anyway, um, particularly after the frost.
1: So the two that you're farming that the deer the deer are keying in on, what was the varieties of those?
2: Winecap has about 83 different names. I'm going to give you the Latin Streferia ragusa annulata, which means the king's crown. Um, it has names ranging from the garden giant to the compost mushroom uh, to, you know, uh, the king's streferia. There's so many names out there. Okay. For it. okay. the second one is a white oyster mushroom that naturally occurs. Uh, so this would be Pleurotis, uh pulmonaris. Um So, or sorry, pleurotus populinus, it has an affinity for popple trees, right? So how many of you guys have seen uh, white mushrooms late in the year on popple trees, right? Even when there's snow on the ground melting, you know, or three-stall cycle, right? How many times have you seen bites taken out of those? So those are particularly the two I'm concentrating on. So one likes to grow on felled wood or broken branches, i.e. hinge cuts, or brush piles, things of that nature. So we can kind of take advantage of what we're already doing or what's already there in that scenario. Or the second one has an affinity for a ground bed, which is a mixture of materials assembled in a specific way. Um, As a mushroom farmer, I know how to make these things produce faster. I know how to make them more prolific. You know, there there are tips and tricks. You can go on YouTube and look at how to do these, right? There's gonna be a hundred mushroom companies they're going to be trying to teach you how to do it. Cool. That's because they want to sell you the spawn. I have the perspective of a farmer, which is how do I do less for more without spending any money or as little money as possible? Right. And I have a decade of experience behind the belt on this. So I know how to produce these and propagate them so that it kind of becomes a one-time expense in the case one a wine cap bed. And it can kind of be an annual thing in syrup season uh, for the case of the, uh, the oyster mushroom. Um, you know. So uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know. You don't have to spend a ton on this. You could easily build this up. This is a perennial food source in the case of the wine cap bed. With the oyster mushrooms, they'll hang around for a few years and they'll peter out. We get what we call dwindling returns. Same thing with the wine caps if you don't refresh them every year, you know. which is just adding a new layer of wood chips in the spring. You know, sounds exhausting, right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So are the deer seeking these out as kind of like a dessert, like an ice cream that they like, or is there something that they're seeking out in their diet?
2: I think we need to talk about their diet and how we, to understand this, we have to go back in time to the beginning of, of time. So if you guys would give me a minute here to put this into a fungal perspective. So sure. Up until the last 10 years or so, as microbiologists, which would be everyone from foresters to uh, wildlife biology, the world has been viewed through a bacterial lens, right? Bacteria and trees are the dominant thing in our forests. correct? Well, that's erroneous. It's fungal. All life is fungal in origin that's more than a Anything that's eukaryotic, right? More than two cells is fungal in origin all plants all animals all insects all everything once upon a time mushrooms were huge and plants were infinitesimal and then they became smaller uh, or larger lichens mosses grasses those things began to evolve and develop right into the trees they are all dependent plant roots are not physically capable of absorbing anything from the soil from water nutrients. They cannot do it. It's physically impossible. What it is, is their fungal partners who completely dominate the soil and the plants themselves in every direction, make up a three-dimensional spider web. And that monofilament that we think of, that fine white thread. So if you pull up a plant and you see the roots have white threads at the end, those are not threads. Those are tubes. Think of them as a subway system. They move water nutrients everything much in the same way that the internet operates uh so does this so let's call it the wood wide web right the wood wide web is pervasive it connects all trees to each other every plant's connected to each other and it happens that a portion of these wood wide web mycelia produce mushrooms now we get into different roles of fungi those trees that operate with the mushrooms I uh, have a, a technical definition. I'm going to skip all this jargon. You know, it's microhysel, there's endomicrohysel, ectomicrohysel. We're going to skip past that and just say trees and mushrooms work together,
1: right? Okay. How's going to be calling you on all that stuff? <laughs> please, please do. Because if he goes back
2: <laughs> and revisits his microbiology with the new fungal perspective, he'll see that it makes more sense. I get oh, a lot wow. of feedback on this. Unfortunately for microbiologists and bacterium, it's already been disproven. However, they're not... Updated. I'm not trying to say that they're wrong, that that, but they have been given information that's outdated. That's the okay. actuality, right? Sure. So I'm not trying to rock the boat, but this does create waves when you have something concreted as a bedrock for your foundation of soil, for your foundation of forestry in general, and you find out that it's erroneous and that you've been looking through it through a different perspective. Uh, it's hard to to fathom at first until you begin to develop that fungal perspective, right? So with this accurate origin story of all eukaryotes coming out of fungi, right, and the roles of different fungi, we have to talk about bacteria now. Bacteria are enlisted as guilds. They're enslaved, so to speak. They are farmed by fungi, right? So the bacterium in your soil that you want to help you and your you know, things like that. When you spray plot start, for example, to help the bacteria in your soil, negative, sir, you're helping the fungi in your soil and they're farming the bacteria. The, a lot of that plot start stuff, you could just add molasses and a simple molasses tea with the bacterial partner and go to any growth store and get Azos
0: okay.
2: and put it on there. It'd be twice as effective as plot start, and it cost you a fraction of the money. If you have a tank, this should be pretty easy to do. It's just a, um, an air bubbler like uh, you would use for an aquarium, and then your, st- your base water, stuff like that. We'll talk all, yeah, about that later if you guys want. So, now we need to talk about rot. What is rot, right? If it wasn't for rot, which is fungi, bacteria working together in guild and symbiosis, we would have T Rex carcasses and trees everywhere, right? So, what do sure. forestry? They deposit a large bi- amount of biomass every year, whether it's falling trees through cataclysmia, i.e., a tornado blowdown um, you know, just branches breaking through the normal life, uh, of the forest, um, or the leaves dropping. We have a substantial amount of biomass hitting the forest floor every year. And then now it all has to be decomposed and recycled for nutrient value before the following year. Well, who's doing that? It's not bacteria. It's bacteria and fungi working together, right? So now we have a better understanding of the forest floor. Biomass in equals forest, uh, soil, and that's what we're trying to recreate with all agriculture, and uh, is that organic layer that tilt right the top two inches that comes from biomass, um, being inputted in. There's a farming uh saying, Rich father, poor son, you pull all the hay out, you don't put anything back in over your lifetime, you're gonna have a shit ass hay field. Sorry, my uh, my, sure, my friends sure. there, no, you're but good. Your, your kids, your grandkids aren't gonna have a piece of farming ground worth farming, right? right. So uh, people who love care and nurture their land understand that you have to have inputs in those soluble intri- nutrients that are going in with regards to our plot fields are great, but they're, they're, they're quick to go away, right? One season and they're gone. We're, and we're taking all the biomass off of them, whether the deer are eating them or we're, we're uh, harvesting them, right? So we're not putting biomass back in. What does put biomass back in? Well, the fungi, right? Fungi are able to transport nutrients from long distances, miles and miles and miles. That's been proven, right? So there's a high likelihood that all that fertilizer that you're dropping on that cornfield is actually getting transported to the, uh, the woods nearby to get stored in the biomass and then transported back as those plants need it. And the way that works is plants produce sugars. That's all that they produce. They can't produce anything else. They produce sugar from photosynthesis. They exchange that sugar for everything that they need. Via the, so, the food soil paradigm. Now, here's where it gets fun. We think about mushrooms only occurring in the forest, right? That's wrong. I bet you take a crop walk out after you're, uh, I, I mean, I've seen this a hundred times in Organic Ag, where you go in a cornfield uh, oh, a few yeah, days yeah. after a rainy period, there are mushrooms everywhere,
1: Sure.
2: right? Same thing in your bean fields, and your oat fields, so on and so forth. If you, so it's, it's not like there are only mushrooms that occur in the forest. They occur everywhere those edges, right? We all, we're all about deer hunting edges. Well, those edges are some of the most intense areas for mushrooms, especially what we call colonizer species, right? Places that, you know, those, those trees that grow up on edges, those are meant to die in the forest building uh, fairly quickly. So they produce biomass and they produce shade in their lifetime for more mature hardwoods to spring forth, right? They colonize the edge and the edge is always constantly progressing until eventually, you know, more than our lifetimes could observe. Um, it would take two or three lifetimes to fully observe a uh, field transitioning into mature hardwoods. That's what they're trying to do. And mushrooms are a big part of that. So now that we've talked about how uh, soil is actually created through rot, uh, how, what tilth is and how fungi are basically farming our landscape. We need to talk about the fruiting bodies and their hosts, right? The, the best mushrooms that we're after, are hosted with oak trees right so after spring morel season it pretty much and, and that's like in. a
1: that's a general statement overall you're, you're oh, seeing yeah. that everywhere yeah
2: well i mean if we're in a boreal forest where the the, the ecotype is different right, so, right. Spring, so throughout the northern hemisphere across the entire world what's the dominant tree species oaks right sure. it literally is the whole forest is dependent on those oaks are supposed to be that's the dominant archetype right Chestnuts are supposed to be 25% of all the trees here in North America, but they're gone. Uh, Beech should be a large percentage as well, 10 to 15. Well, chestnuts, beech, oaks host most of the same mushrooms. Oaks are pretty much what's left of those, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Those mushrooms that we're after, chanterelles, hedgehogs, hens of the woods, chickens of the woods, right? The large, fleshy, substantial mushrooms that are perennial. They come back year after year after year after year for hundreds of years if the ground is not disturbed add a new metric for valuation of a forest how many land managers say man you got to open this thing up you got to kill all these trees and sunshine down in the ground (laughs) get all these invasives to jump up right that's there there is some truth to that right short term but you, you should be more selective in which trees are being removed with an eye on the fungal roles that cannot be replicated right? We cannot replicate these complex interactions. And they produce substantially more food than we would give them credit for. Yes, they drop acorns, okay? But I can go on YouTube and show you, or uh, we can hop on Amazon and start watching hunting shows. And, you know, somebody will say, oh, he's got his head down and browsing on them acorns. No, sir. Acorns aren't yellow and orange, (laughs) you know? Well, let's zoom in. Oh, look, he's eating mushrooms, right? When we talk about the dietary nutrition of mushrooms in just a moment and how they they reinforce those mass resources and our field crops, your perspective will change on mature forests based on this. There is a different metric we should, in my opinion, and this is opinion based, right? Uh, Based on this hypothesis, it's not a, a proven theorem, although there is a lot of science to support this. We should view a different metric in regards to that, especially when doing thinnings, hinge cuts, opening up the canopy. There are some places. Why is that buck in those mature forests if there's nothing but acorns there, right? Why does he feel so comfortable back there? Well, what is the other food source? If we look at it from this point, those mature forests, especially the large oak stands, are mushroom stands too, right? Well, Matt, okay. I, think,
3: I think that what what the opening the sunlight allows – Compared to the mushrooms would be regeneration. Way more tonnage,
2: right? Actual, right. actual tonnage. What what are the, right. what are but the there are areas there? where that makes perfect sense? Sugar maples, for example. Sugar maples, red maples, they're not hosting a ton of dynamic mushrooms. Uh spruces, you know, if you've got spruce beetle going in, uh, ash and elms are a little bit different because the morel's there. A lot of people love morels. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it across the board. I'm saying we should be a little, a little more selective. We shouldn't be Diversity. doing it as much with yeah, absolutely, yeah, you know, keeping not, it as not diverse we as do possible. It across the board. Yeah. So there, there's a different primer here. We have to be, you know, there. When we look at these stands that produce these large fleshy mushrooms, you know, in these areas, uh, in it, you know, if we're dropping stuff on the edges, that benefits. The mushrooms, because now we're increasing the shade and the moisture on the fringe area around it, and we kill the tree that uh, is occupying real estate that that oak, uh, you know, and that mushroom that's mycorrhizal wants to occupy. So we're doing them a solid. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm saying that we should do it with a more focused intention and eye, possibly on this. Yeah you know, why, why work against nature? Why, why get rid of yeah, something for sure. land, uh, 50, 100, 200 years to create because you didn't realize, you know, if I can, if you, you can stop from doing this, you know, in time to, for your, or now, you know, and you wish you wouldn't have, and you see these mushrooms there, there, there are times to, you can still respond to that cataclysmia by, you know, planting a host species right there where it's fruiting. There, there are ways to still save that. So I'm just, just trying to try and enlighten people to that fungal perspective, not necessarily condemn them for creating a hinge cut.
1: Sure. Definitely place. No. Every that's, tool. That's why we're talking. A place. Yep. That's yep. why we're talking. I like it. Yeah. So bringing this full circle. Let's so talk about obviously food. Obviously yeah. it's not just a dessert for the deer. They're seeking them out for a reason. Oh, no, and these
2: predate, these predate our, our agricultural involvement. So it's arguable that, this was, this, you know, a, a product of evolution, uh, you know, that, that they have very much evolved into this and that we are actually playing into their hands with our soft uh, vegetative crops because of the nutrients uh, that are in there, particularly the amino acids in legumes, lysine, uh, methionine, creatine. Those in particular are, uh, if you're a bodybuilder, you know, if you go down to GNC, what are you going to do, you know, to, to bulk up? create muscle, right? Or if you're a woman who's lactating and you have high demand on your body and you're taking supplements along those lines, those amino acids are are critical. Well, With most mammals, those same compounds work. And in the case of agriculture, I learned this when I was working with dealing with spent brewer's grain as a feed resource. Uh, For omnivores, you have to increase, it's full of fiber, so it's better left to ruminants, but you have to increase the lysine content to match protein, right? Protein doesn't matter unless you have the have full amino acid chain, the license, methionides, everything like that that is complementary that allow that digestion to fully occur and occur without a negative, um, nutrient balance, meaning it, you know, uh, doesn't tax their body more to digest that than it does to, um, you know, to, to, let's say, let's stop this and start it. Let's, uh, let's say that, I'm eating acorns and it takes me 10,000 calories to digest those acorns. And, and I'm uh, I'm only getting 10,500 calories from those acorns. So what's my net yield? 500 bonus calories of towards fat building, antler growth, et cetera, right? This is just hypothetical. It's not a real number. Sure. So please, you know, so that's, that's the point here is that, you know, if we're eating browse, you know, woody browse, twigs, et cetera, that's great. Um, But dietarily, nutritionally, you know, those higher amino and higher soluble nutrient foods are what we want them to be eating. That's where the dynamic growth comes from. That's where the bucks as big as Buick's, right, uh, can possibly occur, right? So let's look at mushrooms as a feed source. Go ahead. That's a nice little UP reference there. Yeah, yeah. Bucks as big as Buick's, eh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The 30-pointer.
3: Yeah, you the know, thirty point
2: um, buck, eh? Yep. No, yeah, we all know the. If you don't know who the Upers are and you've never heard the song "The Thirty Point <laughs> Buck," stop what you're doing right now, put it on pause, <laughs> and you're welcome. That's your new favorite deer camp song.
3: Sorry, I just derailed <laughs> that conversation. But it's, it's totally fine. I, I, think, so, I think we need to cover crude protein or something next with mesh. Yeah, we need to talk about
2: before we cover the the protein analysis and things like that. We need to talk about how the digestive system of a deer works. They're a ruminant. Ruminants like cows, goats, etc., four-chambered stomachs, right? That chambered stomach is full of bacterium. It's designed to break down cellulose, right? Whether it's uh, woody tissue like brows or uh, ended, uh, cellulose from plants, things of that nature. Everyone agree on that? Sure. Time for that. That's, that's 100% accurate information. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Right, right. Mushrooms are not made of cellulose. They convert cellulose. And lignin into chitin. Chitin, similar to what our hair or fingernails made out of, the exoskeleton of a lobster or a bug, right? Um, when we cook chitin uh, as humans, it becomes extremely digestible to us because we're not ruminants, right? For ruminants, it's more digestible than any cellulosis. It is immediately digestible, it's immediately bioavailable. Mm-hmm. Chamber one, not chamber four, chamber one. Right. So it's more digestible. It's more bioavailable. It's more nutrient dense than a lot of what we're feeding them as far as protein of five to 50 percent. And that's a wide range. I understand that. But this is just the numbers that I grabbed off of uh, studies that were done in sciences like that. You have to have a wide breadth. You know, uh, it's, and this is an evolving science, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to peg this down. We're talking about hundreds or even thousands of different mushrooms that could be on the menu. One is inevitably going to be less protein than others when you're sampling them. Right. But those fleshy mushrooms are repeatedly when the case wine cap 30 plus percent, right? How many food sources are out there with 30 plus percent protein that we know of? That's pretty high. Not very many. That's extremely high, especially when we pair that with the lysine, the methionine and the creatine that they're getting from the cereal crops, the young growth cereal crops that, you know, when rice is under 10 inches, when oats are under 10 inches. Well, clover has a fair amount of this stuff in it, especially in the young growth stage or the, the flowers. If You guys didn't know this. The most nutritional part of clover is actually the flower. That's why we see them eating the damn flowers. Deer eat flowers like crazy too. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, in particular, soy winter peas, those are the two big ones that I would cue in on to take advantage of this. And anybody that's planted soy in the woods and anybody that's planted winter peas in the woods got it mowed down more than likely for this reason, you know, Uh, especially in that young growth stage when it's just chock full of those aminos. So those are the particular food sources that complement what's going on here. Now, as far as digestibility, substrate itself especially in the case of uh whether it's a stump i mean have you guys seen a deer chew on a stump before right yeah
3: yeah normally when i've seen it it was back when it was covered in lucky buck or something way back in the day right yeah Yeah, if you put a salt
2: lick on it or something like that they're gonna tear that apart but here's where uh really fun is they will actually eat the straw the wood chips uh, from that bed that we can we make it out of after it's fully colonized they'll dig through the snow and eat that because it's no longer cellulose it's lignin. it's like a giant mushroom right and so for winter quality food they will literally I mean I thought I told you this and Jared I'll testify to this later uh, you know they will fight over it uh, there's there's no other way to describe it it will become a hot thing Right, it, it's a perennial food source, so it, it takes time to get going. But once it gets going, it's it's on. Um, that you know, there's seasonality with these mushrooms. So in the spring, we're looking at elms, and you know, I mean, there's a whole host of trees. Almost every tree hosts some mushrooms. But with regards to the most palatable um, and the ones that we're after as humans in particular, which were most of my personal experiences will correlate from oaks or king. You know, uh, for whatever it's worth, and with if you can get two meals in the same spot, wouldn't you? You know, if you can walk around with your head down eating acorns and mushrooms and get an incredible amount of nutrition, we all know that that fat building for deer really happens this time of year late in the season. After most of the antler growth is going, uh, done, the, uh, the body's recovering from lactation. If you're a doe, you know, well, this is also when the most prolific period of mushrooms comes in and they happen to be side by side with those acorns and, uh, you know mass crops so to speak at this time so that's probably not coincidental it seems like it's a bit of an evolutionary thing and what, what, what time
3: what time is that matt when you're talking about this time for me i mean normally EP, like my season sounds like october
2: big. to me right it depends on your season and you know i'm zone 4a 3d so i get 100 plus frost free days if i'm lucky in a year if you're where i grew up in southern indiana and you're zone 6b that's a totally different scenario right? Uh, you're, you're talking more October, November into your hunting season versus us. We start to see this more dynamic uh, feature. And if you're in the deep South, yeah, I mean, you're probably going to see this all winter. Uh, so there are time timeframes uh, that, that, you know, it, it depends on your zone, but it's, it's much like the way we plant crops, right? Um, I would say it's about the time we're putting Nebraska's in, uh, wherever that may be for you is going to be about the time that in those acorns are dropping too are beginning to drop in that same time period. Usually if they're not already just dropping right after you put them in. So kind of in that time period is where we're going to really see the beginning of the most substantial period of mushrooms for the year. As far as fruiting goes in North American landscape, especially in the Eastern half of the U S now, you know, if, if we're in 10,000 foot elevation of Leadville, Colorado, not the same. If we're in Washington, California, not the same. And I realize you have a national audience. So this is going to require some geography uh, to be to work into this.
3: But yeah, yeah. And how we got talking about this originally was you were thinking that some of the or your hypothesis was along the October lull. Let's yeah. let's dive into that. That mushrooms could possibly be causing so the this most- quote unquote October lull, which we can you know, there's a million different thoughts on that. Anyways, I, I was not going to that, but if the timing is with the acorns, then talk about that.
2: It's not exclusively with the acorns. I would say that the acorn drops, you know, when they begin to shed those small acorns, we to as drops instead of the full fruit load that happens later when the okay. full fruit load drops. When those acorn drops begin to hit the ground, those first few immature acorns that the trees kind of giving up on, that begins the window. I'm not saying it it, it opens the window for you know um, the most substantial. It does. It opens the m- window for the most substantial part of the year. We're talking about an eight to ten week process, you know, okay. not instantly. So I say that because. Once those, uh, you know, those immature sheds, you know, you get the oak galls and the, the, the oak drops beginning to hit the forest floor. That's when the chanterelle seasons really begin to kick off. That's uh, hedgehogs are going to be coming in fairly shortly afterwards. And then again, it goes crazy. It's like every mushroom in the woods, right, as the trees are dropping their leaves or when are they dropping their leaves? Uh, for us, it's the October lull, right, uh, here in the U.P., well, that happens to be when every mushroom in the damn woods, there's a period of about two weeks where there is more mushrooms in the forest than you could ever dream of, right? And they're usually in these, these pockets of shade and moisture in the landscape. They're not necessarily wide cast, but uh, October low generally coincides with a rainy period, right? So my hypothesis is that the two correlate. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not saying that it causes it exclusively, sure, but I think it could definitely be a major contributing factor, especially if you have, you know, substantial mass resources dropping at that time. Say that the, the large majority of acorns, those big fat juicy ones, are dropping. Um, you know, you have your chestnut drops if you do have lone bastions, beech nut drops, whatever those may be. But if you have the option to hole up in a small area and eat this super boom. Of food all around you, why wouldn't you instead of traveling all around, especially when you know humans are in the woods? You know, uh, uh, it, for us, October lull is two weeks into the season. Well, that's two weeks after archery over That means there's two full weekends for everybody to be in the woods. You know, usually that first week archery is not so bad, second week archery is not so bad. But when you get in third, fourth week archery, they're in, the, they know the game now. The deer know that people are after them. You know, they're not, they're not dumb you see
3: it and you kind of came across this by by just accident you know like observation deer, weren't
2: you yeah I mean I, I all right so as a professional forager I jumped some of the biggest bucks you've ever seen in your life because I go in places no one else wants to go you know all that thick nasty shit that cuts you up Well, guess what there's a ton of shade there and there's a ton of moisture in there and that's where there's usually some pretty good mushrooms right so I, I belly in there I'm half Indian. I like to walk through the woods as quietly as possible. I don't want, I want to see everything and I don't want it to see me as much as possible. Don't we all right. I'm pretty Surely. good at that game. I've been trying to do it my whole life. Um, especially, you know, earlier in the year for all the crunchy leaves hit the ground or if it's been raining and it's quiet <laughs> boys, I have seen some of the biggest damn deer you've ever seen in your, in your life bucks that I've never seen on cameras in areas or never seen out on the ag fields in areas. They just hold up in those little swamp pockets or this little holler full of mushrooms, you know, and it's, it's not just once It's time, time, time again, to the point where I almost feel like if I go into any of these spots, if I get into a spot where I can really smell mushrooms in it, I'm pretty sure I'm going to jump something. Uh, A lot of times I jump smaller bucks, what I'll call the satellite bucks or the satellite does. Um, if you think of them, you know, like a big bed, big buck bedded in one area and kind of using all the other deer around him as the bodyguard, so to speak, right. I'll jump those satellite bucks in that area as I begin to work into it almost time and time again. And then if I don't hear him cough and run, uh, if I get through the, that, you know, that front line, so to speak, a lot of times I'll find something back there,
1: you know, um, bears too.
2: So it goes both ways. Sometimes you sneak up on a bear.
1: Matt, you mentioned observation. Have you ever put any trail cameras over these uh, mushrooms that they're feeding on or know of anybody that has? And if Not so, yet. is that available? So what
2: we're doing now is i uh, Jerry put me in contact with someone uh, in my neighborhood, less than 10 miles away, 15 miles away, uh, up the road in Segola, Michigan. And he and I this last weekend put some beds in at his place. The farmer I've been leasing from forever. He and I have had a uh, lengthy discussion and in the name of science. But I'm going to uh, renew the beds that are out there, and we're putting cams there. Um, I'm on a budget, boys. You know, I'm, an, sure. I'm a dad. My, my oldest is eight. My youngest is two and a half. Hell, I, I'm selling a mushroom company and starting a new job. and uh, We, we, we understand. bought a house sure. last year, and I'm remodeling it. and It's one step off of being condemned, 5,000 feet of Victorian bliss and the, the new camp. And, you know i got a lot of irons in the fire right now and it's it's damn hard to find time to do anything let alone oh, yeah. everything i want to do um yep. historically no we haven't put the cams out historically on these spaces it, moving, moving yeah. forward yes they're on there now they and so with the uh the beds that i'm doing there there are two focuses with the beds that we're putting up and the cams we are putting up right now one is uh, a A sanctuary preserve strategy, sit and observe. Trail cam sits on this bed. No one does anything on it. We change the camera, uh, SD card, as little as possible. If I could afford a cell cam or whatever, believe me, I would. All I have is cascos, unfortunately, but I'll make do with what I got where I am, like I always have. Right. Um, The second one uh, strategy is kill plot style. Right. Let's put them where we can observe. You know, if I'm going to be sitting in this stand, your trail cam only captures a a smidgen of the view, the overall view, you know, um, I'm pretty good at tracks, you know, I I mean, I've kind of taken that into my wheelhouse over my life. I'm I'm damn good at track. A lot of my friends call me if they want to help track anything, right. Just for that reason, because it's just something that I do for fun. Uh, and have done for many, many years. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, if you're going to be sitting in there, uh, trail cams are new to me in that regard because I, I like to track, I kind of read tracks and say, all right, this is in here. This probably happened about this time, this many hours ago, things of that nature. So trail cams and observation are new to me um, in that regard. I'm more of a sit and watch boy, you know, or, or uh, observe as I go. You know, obviously I'm moving right. as a forager quite a bit. Um, you know, so we are putting the trail cams on there moving forward the mushroom company that i've owned for years uh that i'm closing with regards to the business model we had uh i'm converting it to this i'm going to do some work with this so you guys can follow along with that and that's where and then of course if you're in the habitat chat podcast we already have posts growing uh there um you know, if you have questions, reach out, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure this is going to get to be too much too soon uh, eventually, but I'll do my damn best to, to do what I can. Uh, like I said, I'm not trying to be a millionaire off of this or anything. Like, don't get me wrong. That'd be great. But at the same time, <laughs> if I can help my fellow humans – uh, and I can help sure. anybody, especially, uh, you know, someone who's doing a poor boy setup or doesn't have access to be able to drop trees and open up the forest floor. If I can give somebody one tool in their toolbox that presents a realistic option for where they are right now, that works. You know, that, that, that's, uh, that I'll take them karma points any day. So for whatever that's worth with regards to trail camps. Yep. We're putting them on there. Yep. There's going to be stuff going forward. Uh, you know and we're going to see. Uh, I very, uh, I'm very. i going to do some YouTube stuff as well, not only making events, but talking about where, what, when, why, how, answering all those questions. I really like the way Jeff Sturgis does things, so I kind of, you know, they say imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I'm going to try to make some inspiration from Mr. Sturgis and try to maybe do them top fives and, you know, whatever it may be to try to, kind of pull all this into a a usable form for someone who's doing their own
1: self-education on the subject. So getting to the how-tos of it, and you mentioned working with uh, another piece of land, how do you go about creating these food plots? Number one, we've got a clear
2: spot. We've got to wipe it down to to bare earth. If we're doing uh, a mushroom bed, we need the soil and the bacterium that are in the soil to cooperate. And they're going to, so we need soil exposure, direct soil exposure. So the way we did this most recently with PJ, and this is hell of a lot better than the way I used to do it with the lawnmower is he threw his, uh, his uh, brush hog on the back and just backed into an area. After we cut the uh, spruce, we cut all the, you know, the the branches that would hit us in the face off there and just dropped that bush hog down and let her rip, so to speak, as low as he cared to go. Uh, and then break it down to bare, bare earth with the leaf rake, took all of five minutes to do all that. And we're talking about a, a pretty substantial size, uh, portion, I would generally make these, you know, uh, three foot by 10 foot would be, or a five foot by five foot would kind of be my standard bed. If I were doing them from a bag of spawn. Uh, but because I have the old beds, I was able to use starter starters, just another established bed that you bring in and scatter as a base layer. And then you bring more wood chips on top of it, you kind of make a lasagna, so to speak, or in this case, we had so much that we were able to just deposit a massive amount, <laughs> and put wood chips over it. So that can be the easiest way. So if you're starting from spawn a year or two years down the line, when you have a substantial amount of beds going or a large bed, you can use that as a mother bed to jump off new beds instead of refreshing it. And that's something most people don't know. There are other ways you can use the trimmings from that bed to jump off new beds too. Um, And I'll address all this over time. Uh, Most of the people who are going to want to sell you spawn are going to tell you, you have to do this with spawn and only with spawn and you got to buy the spawn you know, there's, there's a lot of parameters that they're going to say you have to use, but well, I've done a million and a half experiments with this. And I can tell you can pretty much spit on the ground, throw some straw over the top of it, pee on it, uh, whatever. And, uh, and it'll grow. <laughs> you know, and it's very viral. It wants to grow and you just got to give it an opportunity. So that makes it doable. It's not like a lot of other food plots where you really got to nurture it, you know?
1: Now is this under like closed it. canopy or is it dependent
0: Close on the can-
2: species? shade, shade and uh, moisture your friend? Okay. So look for them little dark pockets. You know, if you got a little bedding area and you want to throw one in there, why not? You know, if you can make your bedding area more attractive. That's what we did uh, with this particular scenario is we set up a bed, uh, a food plot bed in this sanctuary, a larger one, you know, uh, and then a couple small uh, and then a food plot bed in this food plot. And then there are three smaller ones that are kind of designed towards directing movement and also creating uh, bedding food habitat uh, as well. So what do you want to do with it? What are your goals? That's the that's kind of what we have to focus on. Primarily, I believe it'll work best as a, a bedding food source, kill plot or a food source. Now, here's where it gets really fun there's soil creation involved with this. So if you've got a spot where you want to have a food plot in two years, right, and or a year and a half, and it has terrible soil, well, you can forego dropping those trees and you can go ahead and put this thing in, in a massive scale. And in two years, when it's rotted down, you'll have an inch and a half or an inch, two inches of beautiful black soil that you never dreamed of having in that spot. How long does it take a forest to make an inch of top soil? 80, 100 years with the best crop cover rotation plan? 50 long years? Time. Long time. Long time. Oh, long time. Not two years. That's for damn sure. Yeah, long time. Right? And these resources that we're inputting, wood chips, straw. I get straw for damn near nothing or cheap because I go to the local farmer that hauls it all. And I sweep out his semi-trailers in his barn and get all the straw off the floor. And it returns them that solid. He does me a saw and sells it to me at cost, you know. Uh, so hey, where there's a will, there's a way. The uh, good old boys at the local sawmill—they watch me on the same TV shows that Jared's seen. They know me, and you know they call me Hollywood and everything else. But uh, I taught them <laughs> guys how to how to hunt wild blueberries and wild ramps and 113 you know, different kinds of mushrooms, you know. And uh, they're hunters and they're fishermen and they're sportsmen and. You know, as a minimum, I help to put side dishes on their kids' plates, you know. Uh, so that's pretty good. Uh, they give me wood chips for free and they load me up with that front end loader because, you know, i a good relationship. I've always said we cultivate relationships at our mushroom company and the mushrooms are a byproduct. And I firmly believe that in most any business, you know, you oh, cultivate absolutely. relationships
3: first. Yeah. So. 100%. that's the best thing this podcast has ever done for for Brian or I is just the people we meet, you know, like you and and Brian was just a bear hunt with our buddy Ryan recently. Like this, just yes, it's the relationships are key. Um, and and Matt, I want to be generous of your time here. This has been an information loaded episode here, but we ask everybody one question at the end, and I mean, it's not hey. a mushroom, but I need to know your favorite type of tree.
2: Well, I mean, this is, uh, I'm going to have to break with tradition here. I know I'm forced into the yes, no, one, <laughs> paradigm here. It's but okay. No, I'm no, gonna, no, you're I'm not gonna forced. Have to do me, and I'm going to give you a brief explanation of why Oaks and hemlocks. When you put okay. those two together, you have a conifer producing shade and moisture retention next to a tree that produces a boom of mushrooms, right? Yeah. Mature oak I knew there
1: seed. would be an oak in there.
2: Yeah, mature, <laughs> mature just mature oak stands or beach stands with interspersed uh, conifers. I call those Christmas trees because there's usually a Christmas paycheck or Christmas bonus lane underneath them from a forager perspective. You know, if I were doing this from uh, a mass resource perspective, they would probably be the same. I do love the American chestnut. I love the butternut tree. I have a personal passion for nut trees, especially indigenous American nut trees. Uh, I'm doing stuff with the Chestnut Foundation, the New York chapter. Um, butternuts have been a side passion of mine for years, collecting nuts from different locations and getting orchards going at the farm. Uh, but it's definitely going to be oaks and hemlocks, baby. There's not much more
3: beautiful though than a nice hemlock or a nice oak. I mean, I'm I'm with you on the the mechanical part of it, the 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 reason being. But either way, solid answers. So right on. absolutely yeah thank you very much Matt. if anybody wants to to follow along um i know you know you you had a company you're, you're selling that where, where can we find you i know we can find you in the habitat chat facebook right. group which thank you for posting up there hey uh, no worries anywhere else or do you want to just post up there when you have your your new stuff up and going whatever you want yeah.
2: i call this concept myco habitat my cohabitat or myco as in the latin for mushroom in the word habitat for whichever way you choose to disseminate it um the Michael habitat being that you know you get food out of this too that's the bonus for this you know boys we, we're not just making food for us we're making food for them And anytime you got to compete for food resources with deer that one ups the game of which one i want to kill you know yeah. uh so i'm throwing that out there uh i'm not choosing to use that name i'm, I'm just going to stick with the, the farm that we've had for forever we have uh you know tons of information there and it shows the the authentic nature of this transition so shiitake like the mushroom creek like the body of water we're at shiitake creek across every uh platform we're shiitake creek at gmail shiitake creek.com you get it facebook.com backslash shiitake creek and when you spell shiitake there's two i's Yep. otherwise it's just shit oh <laughs> shit creek Yeah, and that's the running joke. I was an adventure (laughs) sports guide for so long. That's hilarious. I've been up shit creek my whole life, and I'm great with the paddle, so bring it on.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
3: we're good to go. Well, shoot, Matt. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was extremely informative and very unique for for what we normally talk about. If there's any way we can try to make our properties more diverse and add everything our neighbors do not have to be more attractive, this is by far one of them. That's why I wanted to have you on. So thank you very much, sir, and, and let's do it again in the future. Very cool.
2: y'all thank you all for the opportunity I hope this helps somebody if somebody's pissed off about what I just said just stop take two minutes I'm, you can't unhear it right uh reach out to me but we'll, we'll work through scholarly articles you don't have to rage on the internet against how I'm full of shit and snake oil or whatever you think you know uh, I'm a real human just like everybody else my feelings get hurt let's talk about this if I'm wrong convince me of it you know uh, with science. I wouldn't
3: worry about that. We have a very good listenership and uh, yeah, ain't nobody got time for that. So appreciate that, Matt. Thank you very much, buddy.
2: Bless y'all. Have a good day, boys. Thanks, Matt.
3: Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast you type out something nice i will send you a free habitat podcast decal if you haven't been to our website habitatpodcast.com we have our habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab check out our hp land plans there we also have hats t-shirts and decals up at habitatpodcast.com of course all of our podcast episodes and then we have a new habitat podcast journal where we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts. Um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, Packer Max Cultipackers, Afflictor Broadheads michigan whitetail pursuit and morse nursery thank you so much guys for tuning in once again get back with us soon we're gonna have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers